Hey, this is Ross Payton. Just want to remind you that there's one week left on the Delta Green Kickstarter. They've added two new rewards, uh, The New Age, which for $300, you get all the new physical books funded by the project, a PDF version of each physical book, and all the PDFs funded by this project. Uh, so it's already a deal. Uh, you're saving money from retail uh, by getting all of this. And then there's, they've also added The Old Ways, which includes everything I just mentioned, plus uh, all the ebooks and PDFs listed under previously published. In other words, all the older Delta Green material Delta Green, Delta Green Countdown, all the fiction, uh, it's eyes of oper- uh Eyes only, targets of opportunity. It's a it's a great deal, and that's three hundred fifty dollars. So, uh, one week left. If we get to two hundred sixty thousand uh, dollars, we unlock Deep States, which is about Majestic Twelve. Uh, and yeah, so thank you for su- your support for the Kickstarter, and enjoy this panel on horror. Hello, everyone. This is Ross Payton from Rollback Global Radio. Uh, we're doing scary parrots, uh, weird. Uh, horror in games, uh, I believe it's the title. Uh, and I'm with, I'm here today with uh, Caleb from Roleplaying Bubble Radio as well. Hi. Uh, Jack Graham from Posthuman Studios. Howdy. Uh, and John Kennedy and what? Uh, Third Eye Games. Third Eye Games. Third Eye sorry, games. sorry. Uh, and yeah, we're here talking about weird uh, in horror, uh, which is sort of not just horror. It's a very specific type of horror. So Caleb, you can. Well, let's let's get the shameless uh, self promotion out of the way. So everybody, <laughs> introduce yourself and what are you hawking at Gen Con <clears throat> this round? <laughs> All right, so uh, hi, uh, I'm Jack Graham. I'm one of the writers on the Eclipse Phase line at Post Human Studios. Our new book this year is called Firewall, and uh, and yeah, come to our booth. It's booth five sixty one. Uh, I'm Caleb Stokes, uh, owner, publisher, and uh, only employee of Heaven Out Games. Uh, I've ever written a book called No Security, Horror Scenarios in the Great Depression, focusing mainly on the weird. Uh, I've got a book currently out called No Soul Left Behind, which is a campaign book for Arc Dreams Better Angels that's available. Uh, I've also done some freelancing for uh, I've got some writing in fire, Firewall. Uh, and, yeah, I, I participate in RPPR with Ross. So. Uh, hi, I'm John Kennedy. Um, I've done a lot of freelancing over the years for Chaosium and Onyx Path Studios. Uh, right now I'm with Third Eye Games. Uh, we're over at booth 2017, and we've got uh, Amp here too, which is our new game this year, um, along with uh, Part-Time Gods of Fate. Uh, yeah, and I'm Ross Payton. Uh, I was the, I'm the co-host of Roleplaying Pub Radio podcast. Uh, feel free to take a card. Uh, we do a lot of horror games as well, uh, including Clip Space. Uh, I also write and publish RPGs. Uh, I have some work in Firewall, and uh, I've also uh, published a superhero game called Base Raiders. We have an adventure out for it called Boiling Point. It's like dungeon crawling, but with superheroes uh, in the superhero genre. Uh, that's at the Art Dream booth, 709. Uh, and I've also uh, worked on The Unspeakable, which is the podcast for The Unspeakable Oath, which is, of course, horror, Cthulhu gaming, uh, and that sort of thing. So, uh, And I've done a lot of freelance work as well. Um, so, yes. All right. So I, I suppose what I should start off is explaining the title of this panel. So the title of this panel comes from an anecdote with our gaming group, and I won't bore you by telling you, like, my character and his stats, though he's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, it was one of the early games I ran, and I made this horrible, like, terrifying monster with, like, this bone tentacle thing that shoots out of mouths and, like, this whole ecosystem, and I write pages and pages and pages. Uh, and it's a Delta Green game, and if you're not familiar with that game, uh, it's a governmental conspiracy fighting Cthulhu stuff, and they have these things called green boxes where they dump all their scary horrible supernatural things and the plot of the game was 
the horrible monster thing escapes from the green box, and you have to inventory the contents of the green box and find all these scary, horrible things in order to find the information you need to hunt the monster. So I went to an online generator that they made for this, and I just hit, give me 20 things, and I rolled a d20. So one of the things is that they rolled in the, uh, in the box was a parrot. And the parrot is in the storage shed. Nobody feeds it, no one caretakes it, but the parrot's alive and in a cage. It has no powers... It does absolutely nothing. It's literally just a parrot. So we run like three sessions of this mini campaign. I got my horrible monster. Buildings are on fire. People are dead. People have gone mad. Literally nothing I did was as scary as the parrot. They just stopped everything. Like, how's it alive? What does it do? They get their guns out. They're like, like this big epic gun battle at the end. You know, people are being dragged away, firing into the distance. And they're like, so what do you guys think of the game? It's like, what about that parrot, though? <laughs> How did it work in? Like, what? And, and the parrot is uh, like, and it was my first encounter with the weird in gaming. And like, that was... Uh, so much more effective than anything I spent you know, logically potting out when I'm talking about horrible monsters. It was so much more effective uh, because it had elements of the weird. So I guess one thing we could talk about is like, what do you think of when you think of weird fiction? Because it's a little difficult to define as a genre. So anybody want to chime in on that? Uh, actually, I do want to make a code. Um, I have, uh, if you have a Wi-Fi device, you can actually Ross download... Ross is back to plugging. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, no, you can get the scenario Lover in the Ice, uh, freeze the PDF on this. Uh, oh, just okay. connect to the uh, it says RPPR podcast server, and there's a bunch of our episodes of podcasts and his scenarios for, including Lover in the Eyes. It doesn't I did not par- include the parrot because I didn't want to derail the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find out how terrifying the, the, the intended horror was supposed to be. Uh, but anyway. Um, yeah, so what do you think of when you think of weird horror, weird fiction? Food. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, people, like, anything... Anything having to do with 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 food or gustatory perversions of various sorts, um, and you know the classic example, of course, is cannibalism, mm. which uh, I get a lot of mileage out of personally. Um, love cannibalism. That old chestnut. Um, <laughs> nothing quite like long pig. Yeah. But anything that has a mouth can can do weird things with its mouth. Yeah. And and when that involves, you know sucking on things or eating things that you shouldn't or licking the PCs <laughs> immediately it says there's something because we're all like we're all very particular about our mouths right I mean what's one of the first things you learn as a small child don't put that in your mouth yes <laughs> and when somebody does and they put that thing in their mouth oh my gosh yeah uh, so yeah on the body writing you know powerful imagery like that that's, that's really good what, what about you um, I think it when there's something that is supposed to seem like benign and innocent, but later turns out to be the creepiest things of all. Um, I forget the name of the movie off the top of my head, but that horror movie about the children who get possessed by some like evil, dark Celtic god. Children of uh, Not that one. It was one that was done like a couple years ago. Village of the Damned. No. Uh, sinister. That was it. Okay. Just when you're looking at something uh, okay. like that, you're so used to being just normal, uh, like in Sinister, or also like in Cujo. Where it's like, that's a big St. Bernard. I know St. Bernard's. That is an unholy demon from hell, <laughs> draped with a cute dog around it. And that, to me, that helps to find weird fiction. Just the normal that's not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, some the, the element is, you can go too far, you can go too extreme with horror pretty quickly. I mean, if you go to the, like, Hellraiser pinhead levels, it, it quickly turns into a parody. Yeah. Um, 
so for me, it's sort of like get, skirting that edge where it's sort of like the Uncanny Valley, uh, where you know the Uncanny Valley is this idea in robotics that if you make a robot, you can either make it look totally robotic, but with like a smiley face, and like, oh, that's a cute little robot, or you can make, it, but if you make it like kind of humanish, but not not humanish enough, it gets extremely creepy to people. And then on the other hand, if it's a total simulacrum, you know, total. It looks normal, uh, like an android. Then we treat it as a human. But if it's in that uncanny valley, like Westworld, uh, if you've seen that in the '70s, where they have sort of a mannequin appearance, uh, that's sort of the, what the uncanny valley. And so, for like some examples, um, like one would be uh, from a movie. Uh, there's a found footage film called uh, Incident in Lake County, uh, which was made in the '90s. It's like a made-for-TV. Uh, it's about a family. They're having Thanksgiving dinner. And then, like, they see strange lights in the sky. And it's sort of like a, you know, UFO alien kind of thing. And one of the ter- scary scenes is, like, the two characters are having at the dinner table, and they're kind of freaked out. They don't know exactly what's going on. But then the screen gets distorted for a little bit, like there's some sort of interference. And then something just walks by the window behind them. And it's a very quick, very subtle thing where you're like, oh, shit, it's, it's about to get real. It's, you know, the creepiest part of the movie. Um, and then in a game, um, as a horror game example, uh, I ran a Call of Cthulhu scenario I called Night, The Night Clerk, where the characters were trapped in this hotel that was like uh, a labyrinth. It, they didn't know what the hell was going on. It was very weird. Um, and then like, we have train tracks apparently overhead. So like, we had that. there we go. That, that's weird. Um, but I think the thing that... So they, they go through this hotel that's getting weirder and weirder. And I think the thing that creeped them out the most was they went in this room, they heard this buzzing sound. And they didn't know what was going on. And then they looked, you see something on the wall. Like, what is it? Oh, it's honey. Uh, and you're like, what? And then they, like, peel back some of the wallpaper and they see, the, I just had the entire room filled with uh, uh, a beehive. Like, at, behind the walls was this massive beehive covering, you know, uh, surrounding you. Not the bees. Yeah, not the bees. Uh, but yeah, the bees. that was it. At that point, everyone was, like, on edge. Like, oh, God, we don't want to disturb the bees. And they like, how the hell did this room get, like, surrounded by bees it made no sense and it out of everything else like them that was the thing that creeped him out the most so it's that sort of edging on it could be explainable but it's it's just you can't quite figure it out it's almost banal almost normal but it's it's in that uncanny valley so for me that that's uh yeah so i i would judge it based on largely you know the definitions of as they exist for uh, weird fiction is that I think there needs to be an intersection somewhere like so if it's a werewolf that's not weird horror it's just a werewolf or like if somebody died with unfinished business and came a ghost that's not weird horror but if you're like Lovecraft and the ghosts are from outer space and they're alien ghosts like now you're intersecting sci-fi or like uh, Vandermeer's uh, you know uh, Area X trilogy like it's like naturalism and horror like oh those plants are weird they shouldn't be bioluminescent like that that creature looks weird uh, or uh, Kafka or Lagodi like mixing like banal bureaucracy in with like the tentacle monster in my manager's office like that I think like the weird intersection is what that middle part of the Venn diagram is that where that's where the weird lives. Um, I also think it essentially needs to not have a resolution, or at least be focused more on uh, the lyrical than the plot. So, like, if I think I have, I think if I had a whole scenario about the scary parrot, it would not have been as interesting if it was. But it was a completely unrelated thing, and there was a scary parrot. So, I think weird horror is mainly good for like setting a mood at your table, which is difficult to do, especially in horror, because 
yeah, there's too much. You have to read and roll too many dice to be truly scared at the table most of the time. Um, so that that and uh, that's what I think. And I think that ultimately, weird horror has got to be transformative, or it's got to be about your limits to transform. Like, so either you're not human by the end of it, or you are recognizing how truly limited it means to be human and that kind of cosmic stuff. So I, I take it on a, a more formal definition. So um, working this stuff into your games and like examples of things to read is probably why you're here and not like uh, academic seminar crap. Uh, so uh, how do you guys work weird horror into your games? Like what are some tips that you know? Uh, how do you operate? So. I, well, when you want to talk about stuff to read, I, I think the, uh, the laundry files, they've done a wonderful job of that bureaucracy thing that you were mm-hmm. just talking about, where um, for, for people who don't know the laundry files, and they've done a very, Cubicle 7 has done a very nice job of carrying that feel through in the, in the RPG. Um, but the, the idea is you're a bunch of British IT nerds, so you deal with all the stuff that <coughs> IT people have to deal with. ISO 9000 audits, endless paperwork, vendor bids, RFPs, having to like source everything correctly and justify your expenditures, and you're fighting Cthulhu. And so you'll you know you'll go from you know one one moment you're dealing with this horrible office drudgery to the next moment everybody in the room's eyes are on fire and you're the only one who happens to be standing in a warden circle. So now you've got to do more paperwork when this is done about the people who got burned alive by Eldritch Fire, but you know. That's not your problem right now. Right now, you're just trying to survive. Uh, yeah, I think the reading's so important because, like, your group probably isn't reading weird horror on their own, and if they are, they're probably reading Lovecraft. So the second you branch out, one of your game options is just direct translation. Uh, so, like, uh, I read a lot of Godi, and I work that into monsters. Uh, uh, t- David Nickel, I just got turned on to him. He's a Canadian uh, author of the weird. Uh, the Sloan Women is one of the most terrifying short stories I've ever read in my life. Uh, it, the basic setup is that this new wife is meeting her uh, mother-in-law who doesn't have all fingers on her hand, but everything's fine. And the husband and the father go out for a drink or to run errands. And then the wife's like, have you seen him yet? And she's like, what? He's like, yeah, you can't really see him while you're here. You need to take pictures. And she opens up this photo album that's like this freaky white thing with concentric circles of rigid bone around the nipples and like a lamprey mouth. It's like, that's your husband. And she's like, no, it's not. It's like, yeah, it is when you see it. You don't see that. They don't, they need you to hide. Uh, but that's what they were. You got to wait till they're asleep and take Polaroids. And like, it's just this, like, your whole life is a lie. You exist for this freaky psychic monster that eats you. And I'm like, I can just throw that in. Nobody's reading David Nickel in my group. I can just throw that in and freak the hell out of everyone, and everyone thinks I'm smart now. Uh, so that, that's uh, that's the direct translation method. I, I get a lot of I get a lot of uh, you know mileage out of that. So uh, I find I have to do a mixture of that because one of the things when like you're trying to run a horror game, if I try to run something Cthulhu in the game, like anything from the Lovecraftian mythos, my players are like would identify it on the spot. It's like you see specks of fire floating down from the sky. It's like, up oh, the star vampire. Or, uh, oh, there are mysterious uh, half-human, half-fish, or well, half-frog, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, tracks leading back to the beach. It's like, oh, the deep ones were here. So sometimes you really have to either find really obscure nuggets from the Lovecraftian mythos, or you just have to wholesale create your own. And maybe you've created a new form of deep one, or maybe you find like a lost cult of Migo who live on Earth instead of Pluto. And trying to just take the originality of what made the original great, 
and trying to make it so that it's still something new and fresh for the players, which can be challenging because there are times when you're just slapping paint on it and being like, it's not a star vampire, it's a stellar vampire. They're, they're completely different. Yeah. <laughs> he excels at being a vampire. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, don't tell them that, though. Yeah. Like, let them metagame their asses off the whole game. Because, like, <laughs> as they're like, well, it's not this, this, that's the anxiety you're trying to create. Like, oh, let them... Let them dangle on the hook for that one. Like, if you're going to make up something new, it's like, no, it's just Cthulhu like anything else. We'll kill some fishmen and go home. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And if um, you go back to Lovecraft's descriptions of Cthulhu, I mean, we all like Cthulhu, right? He's a stuffed toy. Yeah. Cthulhu's so cute. Well, Lovecraft describes him or it as, like, this amorphous mass you know, the, the picture that we have in our heads of Cthulhu now, the, the plush animal that, you know, I give to my friends whenever one of them has a kid, um, is, is, you know, is an order of magnitude uh, removed from Lovecraft's original description. I mean, he's not very specific. He gives impressions of these things. So it's very possible to take some of these classic monsters that we all know and just describe them differently. Emphasize something different about them so they're so that when they're looking at they're not like, oh, it's a zombie. I like zombies. Zombies are cute. I want to be a zombie. Like, just shoot it in the head. Yeah, yeah. No. Or, you know, or with Cthulhu, you know, Cthulhu does not need to be described as a humanoid thing with tentacles for a face. Cthulhu can be what you want it to be. And yeah. that will probably make it a lot scarier than the, the well-loved plush toy that we all know. Yeah, that's your point. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, all Lovecraft said about most of his monsters is like, it defied description! Language cannot contain! And, like, okay, well, you're the writer. It's kind of your job. But, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, just attach any adjective to it because, you know, it's so vague. Um, one thing I would look to is actually the internet. There's sort of been a, a um, uh, there's a growing move of like, uh, if you've heard the term creepypasta, uh, creepypasta is like, comes from copypasta where somebody would copy and paste a story that they've heard somewhere, that they've seen somewhere and put it in a, another form. And creepypasta is uh, the idea of doing short stories and a lot of this sort of like telling ghost stories around a campfire but over the internet. Uh, some of these are non- anonymous, some of these are written by specific authors. Some of the biggest examples would be like Candle Cove, uh, which is a short story written by Chris Straub. Uh, Slenderman. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Slenderman. Uh, but in Candle it's like written as a series of message board posts where the idea is like, do you guys remember this story, this the show you'd watch as kids called Candle Cove? Oh yeah, I remember that. There's the Skin Taker, and you have to go and then you have to go inside the Pirate Cove, and you're like, yeah. Uh, and then, like, it's just a very, very short story. It's only, like, a 1,000 or 2,000 words long, so you could read in, like, 10 minutes. Uh, and so I, I, I based a game off of that because, like, holy crap, because there's no resolution to it either. It's just, like, just something weird that, that, that happened, and, like, there's no, there's no uh, finale, there's no confrontation of evil. Uh, and then, like, yeah, Slenderman. Um, you can get, like, there have been a ton of different versions of video... Uh, Series, uh, YouTube series uh, that used Slenderman, like the one I, I've only followed one, Marble Hornets. Marble Hornets has problems in its narrative, but there are some individual videos with really cool, very creepy effects and creepy scenes. And you can take some of those ideas, and uh, it's very weird stuff. And so, um, the, the fact yeah. that everybody's working on this stuff on the internet at once and it's so contradictory makes a weird canon accelerate it. It's like mythos, yeah. you know, I'm going to have my five pen pal author friends write it and so it's going to be all contradictory and all inclusive and non 
uh, it, it, not climactic. It's not going to resolve. Like the internet's doing that for you at quick speeds. So that that's the benefit. But uh, another thing I do is if I'm designing a weird monster, I usually start with the metaphor, or, or I, 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 or you can come out from the other end. You can start with the imagery. So like the mouths are creepy. I think that's the starting from the imagery thing, and you build the mythos around that. I also start from like other ideas. So like. Um, uh, I've got monsters that are just about divorce and the need for divorce. The companions are just an immortal sorcerer coupler, couple, but they can't die, and they've been around since prehistory, and their hatred for each other is so extreme due to their uh, inability to die that they're just monstrous, monstrous creatures. Uh, and, and so I start from, like, uh, thematic elements move backwards, or I start from, like, images, so, like, Thomas Ligotti's I think clown puppet is the name for it. The the weird marionette giant puppet thing comes into a hat shop, buys a hat, and leaves. It's a Ligoti story. That's all that happens. Um, uh, I made a I made an RPG monster just to make of like the terrifying image of this thing clacking towards you and walking, but not quite walking and defying gravity on strings you can't see. Um, so I mean that you can either attack it from the abstract level and then make it real, or you could have that very real image in your head and sort of. Uh, mythologize it. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, from a game point of view, that you, you have to have some kind of narrative, something to hang. Like, the thing, you couldn't do that Ligoti story in an uh, RPG scenario because the player's like, oh, okay, so that that's it? That's all that happens? And I've seen some scenarios, especially, um, like, there was a fantasy horror one I, I read recently um, where it's like, okay, the players go up the side of the mountain and there's a crazy old guy and he tells them to stay away and then you go up here and then there's a tomb and there's nothing in it uh, but dead people and then there's a lot of death traps and that's it. And also, don't run this adventure if one of your players can talk to plants because that'll ruin the whole goddamn thing. Uh, yeah, Death, Frost, Doom. Uh, and so... Like do things you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You need to have some kind of near like you don't have to explain everything. You don't have to like this is where the this monster comes from. This is exactly what's gonna happen. But you have to have some like a beginning, a middle, and an end. So you can go too weird and too abstract and too non if that makes sense. Yeah. Like you has have to anybody, have moderation. Yeah. Has anybody here read Empire of the Petal Throne? Uh, I'm aware. Really? One person? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Empire of the Petal Throne is a very early role-playing game. It came out around the same time as original D&D. And it, uh, because of various issues, it hasn't stayed in print consistently over the years. But it is a bizarre world. And if, like, if I didn't know better, I would... I would think that the writer had taken a bad batch of acid before he sat down <laughs> to do the monsters. Yeah, yeah, no, he's like, you know, monsters that did have gangrenous jaws. Like half of his monsters will poison you horribly. The other half are things that will scoop all your soft parts out with their proboscis. And and they're like the imagery is wonderfully weird because it 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 tend it tracks toward the Lovecraftian without being clearly Lovecraft, you know, it's he's got his own thing. Barker was very interested in Aztec and Indian mythology. He was a professor of Urdu um, who converted to Islam at some point, but he lived up in Minnesota. You know, he was just a normal gamer otherwise. And uh, yeah, his world is freaky as hell. And if you're just if you just want to dig for some good visuals that nobody else has used, given that there's only one person in this room who's even seen that. <laughs> 
um, it's possibly a, a good source. But another thing that's interesting about his monsters that actually sort of makes them crappy for horror, and a lot of monsters out there that should be scary are crappy for horror, is that they just kill the person right away. And oh, yeah. the problem that you run into with a lot a lot of these these creepy crawlies is that you have this choice to make between player agency and being scary. And if you make something that just one-shots your characters and, you know, the death can be utterly horrific and everybody else in the party will be like, oh my god, your brains just got sucked out through your anus, what the hell? <laughs> um, and, and then they're dead and there's, no, there's nothing else going on. So, finding ways to take some of these monsters that would otherwise just kill you and make transfigurations to the character that are horrific and possibly inconvenient, but don't make the player uh, feel like their character is now unplayable, Yeah, are huge. Like, I I decided once yeah. that I was going to put intelligent Atyugs as sort of the Ur-race that knew all the secrets of the world in this this campaign that I was running. And the Atyug's shtick, if it chose you as one of its agents, was it would just... <laughs> Whap one of its tentacles on you, and it would leave like this rough piece of rugose flesh um, just attached to you. And there was no way to take it off. Like cure disease didn't work. We we're like, yeah, yeah, cure disease. Good, good luck with that. <laughs> Remove curse. No, you need to be a little higher level. And it would, you know, they'd be like, okay, I've got this ugly patch of stuff that smells like sewage permanently stuck to me. And then the eye opens, and they're like, ah, it's got an eye. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it did nothing to the characters game wise. You know, they're they're all they all still love their characters. I'm like, I still want to play this character. Only I've got this thing here, and I don't know what it's for, and I can't get it off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean. <clears throat> A good principle of any horror is leaving the monster unseen as long as possible. Uh, and one way you can really do that in weird is that the weird is so focused on decadence, so like so humanity degrading in the presence of this thing. Like that's such a strong tradition, and that's so much easier to come up with terrifying things because right? humans are scary all on their own. We don't need anything from the stars or the pits or anything. Like we're we're pretty messed up in general. And so we're dicks. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, you can do that kind of decadent stuff. So like um, Margot Lanigan's uh, singing my sister down is this like YA story, which is just terrifying. I don't know why you have to give it to kids, uh, but it's about this girl who sm- who accidentally kills a guy by smacking him as he as he's trying to uh, molest her. And this villages. Um, a way of punishing murder is that you are made to go stand out in this like very slow quick stand while your while your family lays out like planks and stuff to distribute their weight and watches you and they all have to watch you slowly sink until you die. It's utterly terrifying. Like but if I find a cult doing that in the game, like my players are just like gonna you know start loading the shotgun. Like they're they're gonna freak out hard. Like so doing stuff with the decadent are like uh Delilah's Cosmopolis, which is really just a financial story, but, like, the economic collapse causes all this, like, Karkoska-esque weirdness in the streets, uh, or even stuff by the lottery, these weird human systems that have come up that are just, like, wrong, or uh, the Sunderland Experiment. Did they change the name? Uh, Yes, they did. I can't remember what it is now, but they changed it for distribution. Yeah, but, like, it's a low-budget horror film. You don't want to see the angel causing all the change, so you mainly focus on these people that are just weird and off 
uh, and like you can you can pull stuff that you see on the streets out for that kind of stuff, and that's great inspiration. You know, that could fill out a, an incomplete concept of a, a creature. Well, well, I think actually at its heart, that's also what makes some of the best villains and some of the best monsters is that reminder that that they could have been human, or that they have more similarities with humans than maybe the protagonist will. Yeah. Um, like for example, in a game that I ran, uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, they were hunting down this just rogue uh, werewolf. Uh, he was a Black Sparrow dancer. Uh, he was just a regular werewolf who had come to his first change on his own. And he was behaving almost like your traditional like horror movie werewolf, where he was living in the woods, he was preying on others. Uh, it was because he, in his warped mind, that's what he thought werewolves did. And when they first met him, they thought he was very likable. And he was only like age 15. He was very much the, like, the likable teenage kid. Uh, he listened to several bands that several of the players I uh, knew the players liked these bands and they found themselves growing attached but every time they turned a uh, blind eye to him or just looked the other way he would go off and kill someone and they would find like these bones in his lair because in his warped view that's what he werewolves make layers and werewolves, he's the monster from legend <laughs> and the players were just at a loss with how to deal with a creature that they want to try to like and try to redeem but it's just at times so wholly unredeemable and that you have just that almost like cherub-esque uh, influence or innocence on top of just this mask of pure horror. Um, one good uh, condensed sort of section for advice for like the weird uh, in gaming, specific to gaming too, uh, if you want to do some reading on after this, uh, Delta Green Countdown, uh, which available is available as a PDF, has a, a chapter on the uh, Haster Mythos. Uh, and it's talks about a lot of this decadence as a theme. Uh, it's based on the King in Yellow, the Robert Chambers uh, stories, and building upon that. Uh, and in that, there's also uh, a scenario called Night Force, which uh, was written by Dennis Detweller. Uh, but it's also, he put it available, if you Google Night Force, Dennis Detweller, you'd probably be able to get the downloader. And basically, the agent, the players in the scenario are like FBI agents, Delta Green agents, that are sent to investigate a missing artist in this apartment building in New York. And when they go during the day, everyone's there. It's just like the, it, it, a bunch of artists and writers live there, and they're all kind of weird. But they're, you know, it's kind of normal. But if they go there at night, shit gets real. Like, um, and it's in a, in a very kind of weird, very specific weird. It's not like you fight fight monsters or anything. Uh, it's like you look at you see a mouse hole. You you know when you if you search in the mouse hole, you'll find this little gold statue of a of a goldfish. It's like just you know one to one scale. Okay, so well, you're an FBI agent. You what? What do you do with evidence? You bag and tag it, and then later on, you put that evidence away. You feel something moving around in your pocket, and you pull out your evidence bag, and it's a live goldfish. And there's no explanation for it. It's just like, no, nah, it's fucking happened. Uh, <laughs> and then everyone starts loading their shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> that that it, if you're in this room yeah. and you're interested in this stuff and you don't have that book, yeah. fucking go find it. Yeah. Because, like the material on ghouls in there. Yeah is amazing. The material on the insects from Shigai, I mean, the entire thing is just... Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an old book, so your players won't Well, the PDF's available it. now. Uh, it's, on, it's a print-on-demand, too, through Drive-Thru yeah. RPG, so uh, Delta Green Countdown. Um, you know, you've got yeah. me, like, something yeah. you mentioned earlier has got me thinking about how this intersects with eschatological horror. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because this, this idea about humans being transformed under duress um, is really easy to bring out when you have humans in a, in a really awful survival situation. So I don't know if anybody has been reading Seven Eves, but 
I really wanted to know what was going on in Earth during that, during the, the part where everybody knew they were going to die, because holy crap. Or if you've ever seen Children of Men, oh. I think Children of Men might be the scariest movie I've ever seen. People just stop having children. Yeah. And nobody's had a kid in like 18 years. And of course, governments try to keep everything together. But beyond that thin veneer of civilization, you know, outside the lines, everybody is just going ape shit because they know the human race is dying out. They know in another 20 years or so, there'll be nobody who, even if they do figure out how to fix the problem of people not being able to conceive, nobody's going to be young enough to do it. So society is just coming apart at the seams. Um, or the Reavers from Firefly. Oh my God, I just cited Firefly. But, you know, like uh, situations so where people are finding it hard to survive or they just know the end is coming and it's just like, this is all over. I mean, during the Black Plague, there are accounts from Milan of people having orgies in graveyards because they're like, ah, the world is ending. What do we got for that? Mass hysteria and orgies. Uh, Just like Lovecraft said. (laughs) There's this great trilogy of books called The Last Policeman series by Ben Winters, and it's basically like they figure out they have six months, then there's going to be an extension level of an asteroid, and there's nothing we can do. And each of the books is just like a full-blown Raymond Chandler noir mystery. But I think it qualifies as weird because, like, this guy always wants to put policemen, and as everyone quits to, like, go do their bucket list and society starts breaking down, they need policemen. So his, his dream is to be a policeman. So he's a legit detective that goes out and solves mysteries. But everyone he's, like, interviewing and everywhere he goes is, like, this nightmarish hellscape of humanity, like, breaking down. He's, like, got a notebook out during drug-fueled orgies. Like, and when did you last hear? Like, why does it matter? We're all dead! And he's like, so could you repeat that? Did she have, like, 6-1? Like, uh, yeah, and it's just... Wait, and what does he do to convince you, the reader, that why this character would be so rational when everybody else is... Because that's the thing. You, yeah, you, yeah. you put your player he's characters crazy. in that situation. He's yeah. He's yeah. Free. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's his dream. He wants to be. Um, another thing you can do uh, along with the eschatology thing is like um, characters control their actions. You can mess with characters' perceptions because you're their only vehicle to perception. So don't make your character do anything unless there's a mechanic like sanity-wise allowing you to do that. But a great idea is to mess with the perception. So there's uh, there's this great story. I forget who. Uh, Margaret Irwin's The Book, and it's like your prototypical Necronomicon story. Evil book full of evil magic driving a person insane as he reads it. Um, and I love it, because the guy starts reading the book, and then he puts it down, and then he starts reading other books, and everything else throughout the rest of the story is his perception of very famous, well-known stories as altered by the book. So he reads, like, Jane Austen, he's like, a bunch of bitchy old crones whining about, like, it's everything just turns, like, dark and horrible. Everything he reads just, like, is put through this lens of... Uh, of this nightmarish book that's affecting him. And so, like, you can mess with people's perception because you are their perception in the game. So uh, in one of my scenarios, Bryson Springs, if you read this certain manuscript, you can predict where the monster's going to be because you see the strings coming out of the sky, but everyone has strings on them. So, like, if your buddy's going to go reach for a pen, you see this gossamer, like, spiderweb thing hanging off his witch. It twitches, and then half a second later, he reaches for the pen. So you start losing all hope and free will, and the character starts, like, freaking out about fatalism and stuff like that and it's not like I'm going to say well now you take your gun out and kill everyone in your party that's the character's choice you get to choose how you react but 
in a horror story, one of the things, the lack of agency that make it scary is like losing control of your perceptions, being corrupted by that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, especially the feeling of hopelessness. Because um, if you have just, like, if there's a situation where, like, there's a politician who you know is the Antichrist, he's surrounded by his guards, like, his guards all day long, and he's at a huge political rally where he's about to, like, become the president, like in the Omen. Yeah. Um, but and you know, there's no way to openly confront him because, like, you just try to like shout him down and be like, "That guy's the devil," and then you'll just be dragged out. And it, just making it so that you just like you see the problem, you know what it is, but you can't hurt it. And the same thing applies also with monsters that are not like killed by shotguns. I know we've referenced like you know uh, player characters who just load shotguns up with shells, boom, <laughs> problem solved. Um, but if you could somehow put in just either by changing the monster or just incorporating something. Like, um, I hate falling back on werewolves because it's supposed to be weird horror, but uh, if you go back to like early, early accounts of werewolves where they couldn't be killed by silver, where there was like a whole ritual for killing them, or vampires. Like where, the creepy sex orgies it takes to be a werewolf and like wearing garters and like it, all these cultures have terrifying yeah. uh, werewolf myths beyond. Which culture? <laughs> so, no, no, like, yeah, no, some of the pagan stuff, yeah. Um, you know, I talked earlier about creepy pasta. actually reminds me of one I read a little while ago. It's one of these anonymous stories. And it talked, and it has like an idea that I kind of want to use for a game. And the idea is like this guy's talking about he went out to the like camping to have parties with his friends, and so they're out around the, around the campfire at night drinking, having a good time. And then this weird guy just shows up and starts acting weird. And like one of his other friends just gets so unnerved by this stranger that he just leaves on his own. So the guy is like spends all night trying to find his friend. And finally, the next day, he's like, "What? Why'd you leave? I would have taken you home." He's like. Dude, you showed up with that weirdo, and like he just I, creeped me out. It's like no, and so like the narrator is talking, like calls back everyone who was at that party, and they all swear that he arrived with the stranger, that he drove him there, and so like the, the guy is losing his mind because he's like, what the hell? I never saw that guy. He and I dropped him off on my street. He he knew where I live. What's going? You know, and that that's that kind of thing. Like, what the hell's going on? Um, so uh, that's that. With your eschatology, anything you can do to knock humans further down the priority list or the food chain is, is a good idea for weird horror. Um, yeah. Hantine Evans has a story called The Spider. Has anybody read that? Um, it, it's this room where the last three residents, after a week, have killed themselves to a man. So this guy wants to get in at a newspaper. So he's like, I'm going to live in this room, and I'm going to see what it is. It's got a scientific explanation. I'm pretty smart. I can figure it out. And so he sees this woman across the street in her room, and uh, he's, you know, she's kind of fetching. He describes her as a woman. So the spider, the word spider is only used in the title. He describes her as a woman, but the way it's written, you are keenly aware that he is looking at some giant, monstrous, otherworldly spider, and that is not a woman. He's like, all her legs were so beautiful. And you're just like, what? All her... Uh, like it's just so like it is so often and like that's predatory mimicry like so you can take real world stuff and and like make them uh, terrifying ideas like that uh, like uh, allegory of the cave you know leave the cave come back uh, there's a counter philosophical idea called the uh, it's by Thomas Nagel it's called the urinal spider and he's like there's this spider in the philosophy department he's always hanging out at the top of the urinal. Every single day, he just hangs out there, does his spider things. I felt sorry for him, so I got a piece of toilet paper and brought him out and brought him down in the urinal. Uh, so, like, uh, I go into go to the restroom the next day. The spider's still there, exact same spot. Next day, still there, exact same spot. Third day, curled up, dead. <laughs> 
I thought I was helping the spider, but by removing him from his urinal home, I crippled him with terror. What if your monster's just trying to help people? Like, oh, you poor limited humans in your urinals. Let me show you what it's really like. And then, like, yeah, the, the fact that it's like, oh, no, it's for you guys. It's great. Yeah, everyone needs a second head. Like, uh, yeah, like, uh, the, yeah, that, the sort of, like, existentially terrifying. I'm to pull your eyes out and put in better eyes to let you see how things really are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind ah! of thing. <laughs> um, you know, Clive Barker, uh, the guy who wrote Hellraiser, he always... Made a, he, he, I read an interview where he said, like, I always thought, I, I, one of the reasons why I wrote Hellraiser, you know, is because I thought in Hollywood movies the monster never talks to the main character. And I thought, you know, I want to have a monster that actually talks to the people and explains why it's doing what it's doing. And so I think uh, for the weird, having some sort of communication method so it can, you know, uh, not just it's that fight or flight, run away or get the shotgun, you know, that that would really help because just because you can talk to it doesn't mean you're going to... players act. would just shoot it anyway? Yeah, well... <laughs> uh, well, I mean, some sort of communication. Yeah, method. I get you. Uh, I actually ran a game, one of the, uh, an early horror game I ran uh, years ago was called the Arcadia Signal and the, the idea was like, the player, there's this one house where you can hear a radio there's a radio signal comes at this house and this radio signal can you know you can ask it questions and it'll tell you the future and so it's just this urban legend so all the players are like high school students that go up there and they're like well tell me what my future is going to be like but then weird things start happening and they realize the signal's not coming from above it's coming from below the house and so uh, and so whatever's under there starts waking up and so uh, yeah you don't you, if you want to have the monster talk to the player, uh, you want to make it so where the violence is not the immediate option. So have some sort of remove method for that. Oh, uh, there's yeah. this Trail of Cthulhu book called Final Revelation. They're all fantastic. But uh, yeah. uh, Dance in the Blood, uh, the way the monster talks to you is every time there's a radio in any scene, all the other people are like bobbing their head, listening to the radio in the 1930s, and all the players hear is static. And then they start hearing voices. And then it's whenever there's a radio in the room, whether it's on or not, or whether it's unplugged. And now it's just everywhere. And then just your, and then crazy monster talks to them, and they're you know they're shooting all the radios. It doesn't matter. Uh, so yeah, that, that's a good way to get. There's something about radio voices that creeps people out. Yeah, because I, I, for my art project at my regional Burning Man event last year, I found this. Uh, it was a 1930s radio cabinet that somebody had left on the curb in my town. So I snagged it because it yeah. was, you know, and it, and it was really, really run down. I mean, it was not in any way worth restoring as an antique. So I took it and I put it out in the woods with, like, tree branches coming out of it. So it looked like it had been there and the tree had grown through it. I put in some creepy lights and an MP3 player that played um, numbers stations. Oh. Which are, there are these. (laughs) Numbers stations, for those who don't know, are Cold War-era shortwave radio stations where there's just people of different ages, genders, and linguistic bents reading strings of numbers. And they're probably steganography of some sort. In fact, they're almost certainly steganography of some sort. But nobody's really figured out whether the Ruskies were using them, or we were using them, or both sides, or what they ever meant, or anything. And aside from, like, a scratchy ghostly radio voice being... And people were actively walking around this thing. I mean, some of them were on acid, so I don't blame them. But others were, you know, they they just, like, there's a creepy thing, and it looks like it's been here for a hundred years, and it's talking. and, And it's talking... It's just reading numbers at me. And I think there's something about 
um, when you imply that there's a pattern, uh, like number stations are spooky because it's it, like, what's the pattern? Like clearly somebody did this intentionally. Clearly it's meant to be interpreted somehow, but you don't have the key and it just keeps going and going and going, oblivious to whether you're there and you have no idea what the pattern actually is. And that, that can be really creepy because people like to make patterns out of things. You put a puzzle in, in front of people, they'll immediately try to start making sense of it. And if it's a creepy, really difficult puzzle, they're just like, huh, I don't want to be around this anymore. That's actually something um, about when you're creating monsters or incorporating monsters that I know pl- my players dig and other players seem to dig in games that I've been in. Um, if you show how the monster came to be and you show how the monster is part of the puzzle, where it's not enough that you're going to have like um, some bizarre, like you know, hairless, uh, deformed monstrosity roaming through the halls of an old school. If you start to give out hints and clues as to what the creature is, players feel like they're actually uncovering something. They're learning something about it. Um, maybe for the more gung ho characters, they're learning how to kill it. But maybe for the more sympathetic characters, they're thinking, "Wait, so this was once human? How did it become that way? Who made this? And does the, can we uh, change the person back?" Because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, there is that thing like, can a monster be redeemed? And I know, like, I've always, there are like, two players in my group who are just like, you know, the most pure hearted people of all who they want to save every monster, even orcs, even like, you know, two dimensional evil orcs. Um, one thing, also, Jack, uh, just in general as a horror technique, anachronistic technology seems to freak people out. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, it was like film strips were like creepy as hell, but now it's VHS tapes. Like, we have a whole trilogy of found footage horror films that are called VHS. Regrettably. Yeah, no, no, don't go watch them. Yeah. No, there's, there, it's like 40% of one good movie from the film. <laughs> yeah. like, there's a good segment in one and a good segment in two. And like, yeah. and old tapes, they have the dropout because the magnetic tape oh, is yeah, degrading, no, so it's always like scratchy and everything. Um, yeah, number station, stuff like that. So if you can work in anachronistic technology, that, that will uh, seem to make people uncomfortable. Well, so. well don't neglect... Um, Technology in general, so it doesn't have to be like a supernatural focus. Like uh, one of the most one of the most scary games I ever ran for you guys was uh, Preemptive Revenge. Oh yeah, uh, it's just a time traveler was being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, so, I, I, I did a uh, I did a Call of Cthulhu. I had to make like certain skills. They couldn't have like art history, but they could have like jump because they were like preschoolers. And then like this horrible transhuman nightmare comes back and murders their Sunday school teacher, and then it just disappears. And I'm like, all right, make a few more. And now it's your high school dance and then it comes back and does something else. and so like their whole lives are just waiting for this thing to come back and I keep on adding character sheets and I'm like so what have you been doing about like the third time Ross is like I live in a basement <laughs> in a bank vault around me and like yeah they, they're and, and it's just technology and like uh, AI is utterly terrifying as a concept like does anybody know about Roku's basilisk Roko. Yeah, Roko's bad. Yeah, the idea that brings something into being. Yeah, like, uh, you know, mimetic viruses and stuff like that. Those those are all, ooh, yeah, freaky stuff. Uh, so I guess uh, we got a few minutes left. We should open up to questions. Uh, what do you guys want to know more about? Yeah. One of the things I've run into running a Coast phase is my players, if they, if they shoot it once and it looks wounded, they might chase it down and keep trying to shoot it. If it doesn't immediately die, their first quest is just kill themselves and everything around them. The blow up the spaceship, whatever, just yeah. Fight, but yeah. suicide immediately. 
Well, I mean, it's a it's a viable tactic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, Fabian tactics, man. Sounds yeah. like your players <laughs> are pretty smart. <laughs> not to uh, encourage group suicide. Mm. Yeah. Well, in Eclipse Phase, I mean, uh, for those of you not familiar with Eclipse Phase, it is a uh, set in the far future where your mind is software and you can back up your brain. And so, if your character dies, you can be restored from backup. So you'd like a TPK is not really a TPK. So you need to start fucking with the backups. <laughs> oh, you know that like. Uh, Caleb's premise for mm-hmm. campaign demo of uh, Eclipse Face was literally premised around a vir- a computer virus that would like fuck up your backup in a way, such a way that you 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 could permanently die. You didn't know it uh, until it was too late. Uh, so like for you, uh, if your players are just too nuke it from orbit, that's the only way to be sure. Um, I would set it in circumstances where they can't do that, like in highly populated areas. And like firewall, like if they're firewall agents, the whole point is to save transhumanity. So like you can't just blow up every, the last big city on Mars, you know, like we kind of need it. Um, so or, or make it pervasive, like yeah. I, I rarely use like X-Threats or Exurgent stuff in my games because like there's so much in your lovely setting uh, that it is, I use a lot of crime stuff because like, alright, yeah, you blew up that nine lives have too bad they're soul trading and torturing people digitally everywhere else in the universe now like it's a it's a game of uh, conspiracy as well so like you need to be a spy sometimes it's not always a bug hunt like maybe you need to pretend to be a monster for a while until you map their network like uh so oh yeah forcing people to pretend to be monsters yeah uh, it, 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 not not everything is like an exurgent. Don't make everything an exurgent zombie. Like sometimes it's just like a really really evil group of people, uh, but they could still be like existentially terrifying. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, first uh, a resource you might want to check out is the, the Cybernet Cultures Research Unit, okay. um, which is like a '90s Warwick University that explored this idea of hyperstition, which is like kind of using Lovecraft as a foundation to see how you could create myths. Do you know, you know about this? Uh, no, sorry. I saw someone in the back. Oh, uh, <laughs> Way to go, Ross. Uh, uh, anyway, I, yeah. my, my question is, uh, you kind of touched on it, where, you know, the thing that's kind of key to the weird is, you know, fatalism, lack of agency, and, um, you know, inevitability. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we play games to pretend we have agency. <laughs> So, you know, how do you kind of square that circle? Well, everybody likes... Sometimes there's a challenge. Sometimes you just need that challenge. I mean, it's it's satisfying sometimes to go out and if you're playing D&D, to just kill like 100 orcs and call it a day and be like, yes, I just killed 100 orcs. I am so cool. But there are times when, like, the challenge makes it fun where it's, you know, you have to uncover the mystery. You have to work at uncovering the mystery. It's not just roll die, get clues, solve problem. It's okay. I've got this strip of paper and like you know this old uh, index card from a Dewey Decimal System. What's the next step? Right. Well, I mean that's that's not really. Well, I, I don't think it's a matter of like making fatalism at all more palatable. I think it's a matter of player communication. So yeah. like, there's no such thing as a bad, wrong fun or anything like that. Um, but I, I find that the type of fun I usually go for I need to hang out with people who like to play Eclipse Phase or Nemesis or Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu because they like those kind of stories now we also play 
you know, 13th Age and, you know, D&D and, like, the more power-heavy fantasy stuff. But we can communicate, you know, that is a story I'm also equal into. There's nothing wrong with, I just, you know, I worked all day, uh, I live in a cubicle, I'm all full up on cosmic horror already, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't want that, I want to pretend I'm a magical elf that kills orcs. Yeah, man, sometimes my game's a drag and I just want to play Pathfinder. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's a communication issue. And like, if, if your group doesn't want that, this is not what they want. I wouldn't like try and make... No! Cthulhu's deadly. Fatalism's not all bad. It is. But they, they kind of have to want that flavor already. And in terms of your plotting, you just have to be careful that you never make people totally helpless. Yeah. You, yeah. Can, you can fuck with player characters a lot without leaving them feeling like they can't do anything. Well, their choices have to matter. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it can, exactly. it, it can yeah, be... Well, that's, the, yeah. that's my question. Like, yeah. So the idea is, you know, behind fatalism, yeah. is that your choices don't matter. So how do you express that theme in a game that we play by making choices? Like, I guess that's the kind of... Reduce agency, don't eliminate agency. So... The choice you make in every Call of Cthulhu game is do I put one in my head or let the monster do whatever it's going to do? Uh, do I want that unknown or do I want the certainty of death? Like, that's not much of choice. It's pretty fatalistic, but it's still a significant choice. Well, I mean, the scene you delay Alien. the inevitable. Yeah. The work? scene in Aliens where Vasquez and the dipshit lieutenant are in the oh, air docks and, they're, and they're both about to buy it and they fucking fight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like... If you put if you put players in that situation, yeah, there are going to be some people who are like, that was a totally unbalanced combat, <laughs> but there are other people who are going to be satisfied with the fact that they put their boot to the alien's neck and unloaded a clip into it, even if they die afterward. Yeah, and, and, and that's why people like fatalistic stories. It's in many ways more heroic. Yeah. No one's getting out of here alive. The ship is going down. You choose to fight anyway. That's sort of more romantic, more courageous than like... I have a Vorpal sword, and I'm invincible, but I guess I'll save today. Like, it's Superman-Batman choice. You know, like, oh, how heroic, Superman, being our god, choosing the heroes, and so totally we have, invincible. We have time for one so, more yeah. We have time for one more question. I think you had your hand up. Uh, yeah. Um, so I am definitely on the side of players. It's like, shot in the shotgun yeah. Yeah, yeah. from Warband. Yeah. Um, you mentioned nine lives. Yeah. Asteroids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big things crashing into small things. It's good. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah. Throw an asteroid at, like... Uh, well, then all those innocent people are dead forever, so... Well, they're already dead. Oh. <laughs> wow! <laughs> think if you're small, you destroy yeah. a plant, you can mess so, up inter- interplanet. So what's the question? Yeah, yeah, is there a question? Yes. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've found that I've started to struggle with, because I also listen to Night Vale, yeah. is the eschatological, the existential horror that is central to Night Vale and the, the kind of motivating the motivating concept of the whole mythos internal to it is laughter. Yeah. And, you know, if you see something, say nothing and drink to forget, how do you square, you know, the, the, the push to the absurdist, the push to the dada? Well, I mean, Night Vale, they, they just the go overboard on it. I mean, like, it's a light touch. I mean, sometimes all you need is a parrot in a cage. And, like, the players will do all the rest for you. They'll just... I've seen yeah. that in Deadlands, where um, yeah. basically sometimes it's nice to just look, throw them a bone and let the, and the players will just run with it, and they'll create right. their own 
problem. Exactly. Yeah, it's very much what John said about the the normal, uncanny, the the mundane, weird. Like, if everything's weird, nothing is weird. Mm-hmm. So the saturation level of Night Vale is hilarious because every conspiracy theory, to every weird thing exists, and that's why it's a, a great podcast. But like, if you're running a game that's not on like Interspire or a surrealist system, which are really fun, uh, mm-hmm. but if you want it to actually be scary, you got you got to have a matter of restraint on that yeah. kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, all right, we got to go, but thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Really uh, uh, give us your tickets if you got them, and if you want cars, and if you want swag yeah. and stuff, come on. Yeah. Up. All right.